welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. A little bit better now. I know, like, Thanksgiving is over. Let me just say this. I'm thankful for y'all. All right. And then we're done with that, and now we're moving on to Christmas time. It's like officially here. Brother Danny broke out the Christmas songs this morning. The trees are up. The lights are on the houses. It's Christmas. It's finally here. Now, here at Ramsey Heights, we started Christmas a little early a few weeks ago. We're going to be back in Luke chapter 1 today, if you'd like to turn there. We started going through this Christmas story and really trying to focus on what What is the actual reason for the season? What does Christmas actually mean? Like, yes, 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 there's a baby in a manger and there's a sheep and a shepherd and it probably smelled really bad and we we know all that, but what is God really doing during this Christmas season is what we're focusing on. So let's go over what we've learned so far in case you missed it or in case you were asleep or whatever it happens to be. We we started off with uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth and, and they were too old to have a child. And yet, in the moment when Zacharias entered the temple, he saw an angel, Gabriel, and Gabriel said to him, you are going to have a child, you and Elizabeth, and and even though you're too old, this child will be the forerunner to the Messiah. Now, what's important about that part of the story is that this tells us not that there's going to be a child named John, is that John is coming because that means that the Messiah is coming, that the Savior of the world is coming. Things are fixing to change. If you continue on down through Luke chapter 1, the Bible cuts to six months later, little teenage girl named Mary and boom here comes Gabriel again and Gabriel comes to her and he says even though you're a virgin you're going to have a child and this child will be known as great this child is the Messiah this child is the savior of the world and Mary took it a little bit better than Zacharias did Continuing on, we see that Mary, because Gabriel told her, he decides to, or she decides to go see Elizabeth. Well, if Elizabeth's pregnant and I'm pregnant and we're part of the same plan, maybe we should go talk this out. And so Mary goes on a journey and she visits, visits Elizabeth, is what we learned last week, and we talked about their greeting as Elizabeth sees Mary for the first time. Did you guys have that moment over Thanksgiving? Like, like, you know, you hadn't seen your family in a while. There's that one aunt you see twice a year and everybody gathered at your house and there was, there was hugging or fist bumping or whatever we're doing during COVID. And, and there was all that excitement. Like, I get to spend some time with my family. Did y'all have that? Okay. All right. <laughs> Good. Uh, uh, I'll be honest with you. Um, Thanksgiving was... Um, Thanksgiving was a little hard on me and Jessica this year. We, uh, we, we were excited to see family. And of course, 2020 has just been a crazy year. And um, I'll be honest with you, we, we could really use your prayers. Um, see, nobody told us that um, we learned this week that when you have a baby, your presence is no longer required at family gatherings. Uh, you walk in and nobody says, hi, Brian, hi, Jessica. They say, oh, you brought the baby. And then you sit in a corner for the, for the next like two hours while everybody looks at the baby. And the only thing they say to you is, oh, how precious that baby is. And then they forget you're there. Like, I'll be honest with you. I ain't going next year. I've done decided I'm sending the baby and then I'm going hunting. I'm not going to Thanksgiving again next year. And, and that's not a personal experience. 
That's a biblical fact that that's the way that it works. Look at that story we learned last week. Like Mary walks 100 miles to go see Elizabeth. Now, now listen, let me say that again. Mary, pregnant Mary, walks 100 miles to go see Elizabeth. And she cries out from the distance, hi, Elizabeth. And what does Elizabeth say? You brought a baby to my house. Now, Now, granted, it was the Messiah, but still, it's the same basic concept. So our first take home truth this morning is if you have a baby, your family will no longer love you. And if you're thinking about getting married and having children and sometime in the future, you need to know that because nobody told me and Jessica that's how it was going to be. And we are healing. Uh, the Lord is our strength, but your, your prayers are required or, or um, appreciated. No. All joking aside, though, look at that interaction with, with Mary and Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth walks out there and says, oh, you brought the baby. I, I love this interaction. Mary says, hi. Elizabeth freaks out. You brought the Messiah to my house. And then Mary erupts into this spontaneous moment of worship. That's not how my Thanksgiving went at all. Like, we don't greet each other, exclaim, here's a baby, and then people start singing randomly. But the way the scripture reads, that, that's what happens here. And what an odd interaction between these two. But I think that oddness tells us about the specialness of the moment of Mary coming to see Elizabeth last week. Uh, think about it. For me, it's not that our family wasn't excited to see me and Jessica. It's just that there was something more exciting than me and Jessica walking through the door, something cute and cuddly. And when Mary walks in to see Elizabeth, it's not that Elizabeth doesn't want to see Mary. It's that there's, there's something more exciting. There's, 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 there's new change in the world coming about, this, this new child coming around. And so when Mary experiences this moment and she sees Elizabeth's greeting, there's this spontaneous moment of just worship. Mary is so overcome with, with just, I think maybe for the first time, really grasping and really understanding what God's doing is she just stands there and she just sings and she worships God. And it's pretty amazing to think that God not only records this moment for us, but he records the song that Mary sings. Would it not have been sufficient to just say, here's the greeting, Elizabeth freaks out, and Mary worshiped? But, but God gives us the actual words that Mary sang. And this, this account from Luke is recorded 40, 50 years after this event. But the song was remembered, and that's what we're going to study today. And the fact that God had it um, recorded in the Bible tells me that there's something that we can learn from these words and feelings that poured out of Mary. So what we're looking at today is called Mary's Song. You might have heard it called The Magnificent. And in different traditions of Christianity, this song has been used at Christmas for, for hundreds and hundreds of years as an actual hymn that people sing. We're going to look at two basic parts today. The, the first part, the first part that we're fixing to read is Mary's personal response. How does she respond to what God is doing in the world and in her life? And then the second part is, how does Mary respond to the understanding of the change that this brings? So if you will with me, let's read Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 49. And Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. I, I love Mary's heart here. I love the way that, that, that Mary starts off her song. She doesn't wait for the instruments to start. She gets right to the point. 
She starts off with, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. She just says exactly what she's feeling. And, and if we were gonna go kind of through this quickly, we could just kind of skim over that. Okay, she's magnifying the Lord and she's rejoicing. But let's look at what Mary is actually saying here. When we talk about our soul, we're talking about our innermost essence, our inner being. Like, you and I are not these parts that we can see. There's, there's that bit of us inside, that part of us that feels, that part of us that loves, that part of us that hurts. This word used for soul here is also translated in the New Testament as heart and mind. There's that part of us. So, so she's talking about her inner essence, and this is what she says about her inner essence. My inner essence, my inner being magnifies the Lord. Now, very rarely do we use that in that context. Like, Brian, what are you doing today? I'm magnifying my wife. Like, that's, in fact, you probably get slapped for that because if you take that out of biblical context, the word magnify means to make bigger, and that's not a good thing to say about your wife. So when we talk about Mary saying, I magnify the Lord, she's saying, I, I, my innermost essence, my innermost being wants to make him bigger. It wants, wants to make him greater, to make the Lord greater. Now, before we go on, let's just go ahead and talk about this. You and I have no effect on how great God is. Our God is perfect. He is great. But what Mary's talking about is my heart and my soul. It cries out, I want God to be greater in my world. I want his, I want his um, purpose to spread across the world. I want him to become greater. You know, that unborn child inside of Elizabeth John, he later says this of Jesus Christ. He says, I must decrease so that he may increase. There's this sense that, that we want the Savior of the world to become greater and his influence and his goodness to spread. She then goes forward and says, and my spirit rejoices. I love that word rejoice. Like we don't use that near enough. All rejoice means is I have joy inside of me and it bubbles out. It has to come out. It has to, <clears throat> excuse me, has to come out. And it has to flow out of me. Sorry, I got something caught up there. Anyway, so that word rejoice means that this, this has to flow out of me. And so if we look at what Mary is saying, she's saying that my, my inner being wants to make God greater. It's crying out to magnify him. And then that flows out of her in this form of worship. We learn something about worship here, is that worship is having a heart of glorified God and then that flowing out of us. Here at Ramsey Heights, the year of 2020 is the year of worship. And as we've studied and put an emphasis on worship in different sermon series and different things that we've studied, I've become that worship is not a song that you sing. Worship is a lifestyle that you live where, where the joy of God just flows out of you. And, and I know that that's something that I fell at. I'm not gonna accuse you of anything, but I think we all fell at that. And listen, this is our first actual take-home truth is that worship is a personal reaction to his personal connection. I love what Mary's doing here. She is having a personal reaction. She's not just singing a song. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, my, my spirit rejoices. A personal reaction to a personal connection. And so with that, I've got to ask you guys a question. What is your personal reaction to his personal connection? Does, does your soul cry out to make him greater in the world? Before you answer that, let, let, me, let me make sure that we're clarifying the question. I, I didn't ask you if you came to church this morning. I, I didn't ask you if you hummed along during the song service. 
I didn't even ask you if you're, if you're wearing your best clothes. I ask you this, is your innermost being crying out to make God greater? And if it, if it is or if it isn't at this moment, let me ask you a couple more questions. What about Tuesday when you're running late and you walk outside hurriedly and there's a flat tire? Does your soul magnify the Lord then? Wednesday, when that printer at work jams for the seventh time in 10 minutes, is your heart magnifying the Lord in that moment? Thursday, when there's a tractor trailer rollover on Ramsey Mountain and you get home two hours later than you thought you were, is your heart crying out to make God greater? If that happens on Thursday, y'all gonna think I'm a prophet. And like, okay. What about Friday? when you've got these really highly anticipated weekend plans and, and they're ruined for COVID-related reasons, does your heart magnify? Does it cry out to make God greater in that moment? I'll tell you how you know if your heart is magnifying God. How you know this is you ask yourself this question, do my actions make God greater? Because see, the Bible is full of this, 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 this thought of this process of what's in here is going to come out of here. It doesn't matter what's in here. At some point, it's going to come out of here. If, if what we carry around in our soul, in our inner essence, is angerness and bitterness, about three minutes into that printer being jammed, that angerness and bitterness is going to come out. If we carry around in our inner present or our innermost essence of ourselves, if we carry around in there hurt from somebody that we trusted, at some point in our life, that hurt is going to spill out of us and we're going to pass it on to somebody that trusts us. But it works the opposite way, too, because if we're full of joy, if we're full of magnifying God in us, guess what's going to pour out of us? It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. And isn't that what rejoicing is? Isn't that what we said rejoicing was in the middle of my almost dying up here? Is that rejoicing is joy pouring out of you? Our second take-home truth is this, is our actions are a reflection of our inner being. Not, not just the words that we say, not just the songs that we sing, and not just the way that we dress when we come to church. Our daily actions in every particular moment is a reflection of our inner being. So why do we struggle with this? Why, why do we struggle to magnify God in ourselves and in our actions? Yeah, I can't help but notice that if you look at Mary's song, if you look at her singing here and her moment of praise, there's an integral link to what Mary is feeling and Mary's own humility. If you look in there, in the, in the first part of it, it says, my heart or my soul, my spirit rejoices in my Savior. See, she understands something about herself in this moment is that she needs a Savior. Who needs a Savior? Sinners. And so what Mary says when she says, I need a Savior, she's looking at herself and going, I'm, I'm dirty. I'm unclean. I need a savior. And you see that humility of knowing that I can't do this on my own. She also refers to herself as the lowly handmaid. She says that God has looked down and he has looked down at the lowly estate of his handmaiden. She looks at herself and she understands, I am a nobody from nowhere. And it is only when we understand in humility who God is versus who we are that we can truly, truly worship. So I ask you again, uh, what's your personal reaction to God's personal connection? Because our ability to worship, if we don't feel a heart of worship on Monday and Saturday and Sunday morning, is because we don't feel enough unworthiness for him. 
Now, I'm not here to get on to you. I'm not, I'm not standing up here calling you a bad Christian. I'm not going to pull you down here to the altar and hope that you cry. I'm not going to hand you a microphone for you to stand up and say, I really have not magnified God. And everybody goes, mm, no, you need to get better at that. That's not what we do here. Because if, if you're struggling with this, you are not alone. I, I struggle with this. Did you guys know that God has a sense of humor? Uh, I, this is not a joke. This really happened. In, in my notes, I had that example, that Wednesday example, that printer jamming f uh, seven times in 10 minutes on Wednesday. I had that written down. And I have this Sunday morning routine that I go through. And I'm a very structured person. I, like I like to leave at a certain time. There's things I do when I get to church. And, and I went over my message one last time this morning, did a few things on the computer, and then I'm going to print it out. And after that, it is set in stone. That's, that's the message. And so after that, it was getting time to leave. The last thing I do is I walk over to my computer computer and I hit print and guess what happened that printer jammed and I'll be honest with you I don't like being late I was 20 minutes late this morning it threw my whole routine off and I was this close to taking that printer and football kicking it I mean I was like I just I felt this anger welling up inside of me and we were at that point where it was almost going to come out and guess guess what God said to me oh he's smart he said D does your soul magnify the Lord on Wednesday when the printer jams seven times in 10 minutes. See, I don't know about those holy saints sitting to your left and right, but me and you, we struggle with magnifying the Lord. We, we, we struggle with, with giving him the praise that he is due, and that's okay. But that's why we need Christmas, is to remind ourselves of his goodness and our unworthiness of his goodness. That's why we sing, that's why we celebrate, that's why we dedicate this time of the year is to get our focus back on our unworthiness and his specialness. That's where Mary's focus is on. Mary could have been focused on how many people are gonna call her names because she's pregnant out of marriage. Mary could have been focused on how bad the pregnancy is gonna be for her being young. Mary, Mary could have focused on that baby's gonna cry all night long, but Mary's focus was on how good God was and how unworthy she was. And it's in that moment that she sees that, that she sees something greater. Because her focus is not on herself, she sees that this baby is not about her. It's not about just what God is doing in her. This child within her is about what God is going to do in the world and the change in the world that's fixing to happen. If you still got your Bibles, let's read what she says here, continuing on through her song, verse 49. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He hath hoped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. If you look at what Mary's doing here, she sees a change in the world. And today I'm gonna to call that change a revolution. The word revolution comes from the root Latin word revolutio, which, which literally means to turn around. And Mary, in this moment when she's having this discussion with Elizabeth, she realizes this is not about me having a child. This is about God turning our world around. And when we use the word revolution today, we use it in a historical sense. Isn't that what happens in a country when it undergoes a revolution? 
There's some, some power structure that people are not pleased with, and so they overthrow it. They turn that country around, and they build a new power structure. In the 1770s, the 13 colonies were ruled by a man named King George III. He was an idiot. He was a tyrant. He was a monarch. He did everything wrong. And he, he levied very unfair punishments on the, on the capitalists, on the colonists, very unfair taxes on the colonists. And out of that was born what we call the American Revolution. It's when Americans stood up and said, we are not happy with this current power structure. We, we want a democracy. We want a republic. We want freedom. We want liberty. And out of that revolution was born the United States and everything that it stands for. And when Mary looks at this child within her, what she sees is that same kind of revolution, the same kind of power shift in the world. Next take-home truth is this, is that Christ's entrance in the world causes a revolutionary power shift. Christ's entrance into the world causes a revolutionary power shift. See, up until this moment in time, there was a tyrant over the world. The tyrant was sin, and we lived under the bondage of darkness. And Mary looks at this tyrant and the bondage of sin that separates us from God, and she realizes this child is coming for a different purpose. This child is coming to free us from that, because from the moment Jesus is born, the power that rules the world is no longer sin. It is grace and freedom. And this is why we're celebrating Christmas. It's not a baby in a manger. It's a new power structure in the world that you and I have the ability to live under. We have the ability to live under grace and freedom instead of the tyranny of sin and darkness. Mary is worshiping for this reason, the same reason that we worship. But here's the thing about revolutions. Revolutions require death. In order for a revolution to actually work, I'm not familiar with any revolution that was completely bloodless. The closest thing to a bloodless revolution in the history of the world happened in Panama in the early 1900s, and even it claimed the life of a donkey. Some of you, if I had to set a person, you wouldn't have hit you. I said donkey, you're like, aw, right? Even it claimed the life of a donkey, though. All revolutions require death. And as, as Mary is looking forward into this revolution and she sees what's fixing to happen with Jesus Christ, she's, she sees the death that revolution causes. But, but this isn't the kind of death that you and I mourn over. This isn't the kind of death that we cry over. This is the kind of death that we celebrate. And as she goes through her song, she brings about four deaths. Number one comes from verse 50. It is the death of death. I couldn't come up with any be anything better. The death of death. If you look into verse 50, she begins to talk about the rise of mercy. See, under the tyranny of sin and darkness, each of us live with this over our head that we owe a punishment for our disobedience to God. And it's not something that we can escape. But with the birth of this child, God's mercy is personified into the world and made available to us. Through, through this child, we have access for the first time to grace. That's why the New Testament thing says things like, death, where is your sting? Listen, if something happens to me, y'all take care of my family and have a party. I'm not worried about it. Death, death has no sting anymore because of this child. Uh, the second one is the death of pride. In verse 51, she says, he has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their own hearts. See, the tyranny of sin comes when we look at ourselves, not at God. Isn't that what happened to, to Adam and Eve? When Eve was in the garden and the serpent came to her and he said, uh, hey Eve, he appealed to her pride. Uh, you know, if you, if you eat this, you will be like God. 
you will be as good as God. Look, look at what you could get. Look at you instead of looking at the glory of God. Look at what your glory could be. And, and so the tyranny of sin and darkness brings about this pride in us. But this child, God's power is shown. And you see in Mary, you see that form of humility that should be in all of us. Where it's no longer, I don't, it's no longer looking at me. It's I look at the glory of God. That's what Christmas is about. I'm celebrating the glory of God becoming man with us. So that's the death of pride. The, the, the third one is death of exploitation. I love 52. It might be my, whole, my favorite verse in the whole thing. She says, he has put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. I love what she says here. He says, the mighty, the powerful, the people who rule the world, says she's gonna yank them down, or God's gonna yank them down. He's gonna take them down a notch, to say it in Arkansas terms. And the lowly, the hurting, the you and me, will be exalted, which means to be lifted up. And so you see this, this power shift where the high are coming down and the low are coming up, and, and we stand on equal footing before God. Something that's not possible without, <clears throat> without the child come, because with the death of pride, with the death of pride comes the ability to be humble and accept grace. It takes humility to accept grace. And that's why when Jesus talks, when this baby grows up and he walks around and people ask him things about this new power structure that he's putting in the world, they say things like, who's gonna be the greatest? It's me, isn't it, Jesus? I'm the greatest. And Jesus looks at him and goes, you don't get it. There is no greatest anymore. Th th those who are first will be last and those who are last will be first. In a world that magnifies glory and power, Jesus says, I glorify in those who are servants not those who take advantage of others, not those who get rich by stealing, but those who serve others. And the last thing is the death of want. The death of want. See, because we live in a prideful world where, where people look at themselves instead of the glory of God, because we live in a world where people fight their way up the ladder to become powerful, we live in a world of want because there are haves and have-nots. And, and listen to what Mary says in 53. She says, the hungry are filled and the rich are emptied. See, under this tyranny of sin and pride, the needy are exploited. But in a kingdom, after this revolution, where people, where the greatest among people are servants, the needy will be cared for. Mary sees into the future. She sees what this child means. It's, it's not just about having a baby, and it's not even just about having a savior. It's about a new world order, and we're celebrating that change today. We're celebrating this new kingdom of grace. And I know what you're thinking. Brian, if there is such a new kingdom, why is there still pride outside those doors? Why is there still exploitation, people who are used and abused and hurt? Why are there still needy within miles of this church if there's a new kingdom? It's because this revolution, while it is a worldwide movement, takes place in individuals. This, this is a power structure that takes place in individuals like you and me. When we come to know Christ, when we humble ourselves enough to accept his grace, the first thing he takes from us is he kills death. There, there's no sense in us worrying about dying because death for us means nothing if we're a follower of Christ. Shortly after he justifies us and he takes away our death, he kills our pride. He kills our want to climb the ladder and then he makes us servants who take care of others. See, this, this revolution isn't about a government. It's about individual people who undergo it. And so, just like, just like all revolutions, we, the people, are the revolution. 
In the French Revolution, not very long after the American Revolution, it became pretty politicized and you were either for the revolution or you were against it. And so you would uh, greet people by saying, Viva la Revolution. Uh, long live the revolution. Keep these changes going. That's how you let people know, I support that. And if our hearts are truly crying out to magnify God, truly crying out to make him greater, what we're crying out is long live the revolution of Jesus Christ. Long live the changes that I've seen take place in my life. And may it be able to take place in the lives of those around me. Uh, that's what this revolution is about. And over the years, we have been called many, many things. We've been called Christians, which was originally a derogatory term. The Emperor Julian, the Roman Emperor Julian, he called us Galileans, also a derogatory term. I love this old Arkansas Southerner one where you're churchers. You guys ever heard that one? Those people who go to church and act like they're better than everybody else. My favorite is disciple. Uh, if somebody said, you know, well, who's Brian? He's a disciple. That'd be the best. But we're adding a new term to it. You and I are revolutionaries. We are a part of a movement. We are a part of a power shift in the world of bringing God's glory into this world. Maybe my favorite thing about the American Revolution, and, and this probably makes me a bad American, so please forgive me. It's not flags. It's not George Washington with his awesome hair and wooden teeth. It's not battles. It's not states or constitution or declaration of independence. It's none of that. My favorite thing, historically speaking, about the American Revolution is it was not confined to America. America became the blueprint to freedom for the rest of the world. Within the next 75 years after the American Revolution, we had revolutions in France. Almost every country in South and Central America that were controlled by Spain had a revolution. Revolutions in Italy, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, Belgium, and the list goes on and on and on. When people saw the path that America made to freedom and liberty, they wanted it. And listen carefully. You are the blueprint to the world for people to find the freedom and liberty of Jesus Christ. That's our, that's our last take-home truth, is that your life is a blueprint for others to experience the revolution. See, we become the light of this freedom. We, we become the example of death dying. We become the example of pride dying. And we become the blueprint for others to look at us and say, that's how I get that kind of freedom. But you never thought the people read you like a blueprint but people study you when you leave this place. They know where you go to church. They know you have a Bible. They, they, they know that you quote scripture. People are studying you and, and somewhere deep within them, they may not know it, but guess what they're saying? I want what they have. Why are they so calm during hardship? Why, why, why is it that they seem so happy all the time? Why does their family work the way that it does when, when mine doesn't? And this is what we get to say then, that this is all made possible by the birth of our Savior. This new kingdom, this new revolution revolves around him and what he did. Last history reference. I can't, I can't help myself. I've got to have one more. Some of you may have heard of Nathan Hale. Uh, Nathan Hale, let me make sure I've got it right in my notes here. <clears throat> Nathan Hale was a spy uh, for the uh, Con Continental Army. And during the Revolutionary War, he was captured by the British. And, and the uh, punishment for being a spy is death. And so he was set to be executed for espionage and treason. And at his execution, he stands boldly before everybody. And he gives this long speech. And the part of the speech that everybody remembers is he said, I regret that I have only one life to lose for my country. 
You see, the truth of it is, is a revolutionary is so ingrained in the revolution, so ingrained in the belief of what can happen when power shift struggles that they're willing to give their life for it. And Jesus Christ embodied that too. Jesus, Jesus Christ walked this earth and he was the living revolution. He, he did all of this. He walked this earth in humility. He was a servant. God himself came here and served people. He fed the needy. He took care of the hurting. He did everything that's supposed to happen under this new power structure. But it wasn't enough. See, Jesus Christ knew that in order for this revolution to continue, in order for it to be complete, that somebody would have to die. And he was so engrossed in making sure that you and I had a pathway to freedom that he was willing, not even just willing, excited to die for you and me. If we could have the musicians, please. His death makes all of this possible. His death makes our revolution and our freedom possible. And as we, we go into this, this time of response, I don't even call it invitation anymore, I wanna ask you a question. Have you accepted his gift? And have you allowed him to start changing your life? Have you become a part of the revolution? For the rest of us, I wanna ask you all a question. Don't leave here saying that was a good message. I want you to ask yourself truly, is my soul magnifying the Lord? Is my innermost being crying out, God, be greater? And if it's not, this is the time of year that we remind ourselves what is so special about God's gift to us. And this is the time that...